All right. If you want to make your way back to a seat. I want to, before we, before we start on this week in, in Romans 15, if you've got a Bible, you can open that up. I, I want to go back and catch one thing from last week really briefly. If you were here with us last week uh, or you listened on the podcast, I did some sharing just about kind of myself and, and the last year and where I've been. And I, I just wanted to go back and catch one thing because I listened to it back on the podcast. Um, there, will, there very well may be a time for you and your family, whether it be because of a move or a job change or just a season of life, whatever the case might be, and you, uh, need, you decide that it's time you need to leave LCF. That's okay. We can. I listened back and I thought, am I guilting people into not like leaving the church if they feel like that it's they need to or they've got to move or whatever it is okay we can the point of last week was not you can't ever leave the point of last week was I had an unhealthy thing going on in relation to those we can have those conversations celebrate what it is that the Lord is doing in your life and where he's moving and where he's taking you um so yeah I wanted to go back and catch that cool all right let's pray uh, God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for your grace. Lord, as we're going to reflect on and see in your word this morning, uh, God, thank you that by Christ we've been accepted. God, that we've been brought into union with you. Lord, I pray that as a church, that like Romans fifteen seven says, God, that we would accept one another, that we would have union with one another just as we have union with Christ, just as he has accepted us. God, I pray your spirit would be here this morning. Help us to see that truth clearly. God, speak to our hearts, challenge us and encourage us. Point us toward what it might look like for us to take practical steps toward that kind of unity, not just within our own church and within our own fellowship, God, but to have that unity as the big C church as well. Uh, God, I pray that all that we do here this morning is always would glorify and honor you. Would the gospel be clear? Would we make much out of Jesus this morning and all that we say and all that we do? We pray this in his matchless name. Amen. There's a, there's a thing that's more common at, in movies now than it used to be, or at least than, it's more, much more common now than I remember from when I was younger. And that's that... A movie will end and the credits will start to roll and you go to like gather up all your stuff and you're, you're grabbing your coat or whatever you've got with you and you stand up to leave and you kind of look around or you notice that you can't get out of your own aisle because like 60% of the movie theater hasn't moved. And that's because there might be a scene tucked into the credits or at the end of the credits. The movie itself has ended, that story is, has come to a stop, but the director or the producer has one more thing they want you to see or they want to show you. A lot of times it's about a sequel that might be coming. It could be some outtakes from the movie. It could be whatever, but there's something tucked in there at the end that they want you to see and they want you to hear. May or may not be related much to what's happened in the movie that you just watched. What we're going to see here at the end of uh, Romans 15, verse 13, we're going to work from verses 7 to 13 this morning, is that Romans 15, 13 is going to wrap up the content part of the letter of Romans. And then Paul has some other personal kind of notes that he wants to convey from Romans 15, 14, all the way through the end of chapter 16. From 15, 14 on would be kind of 
like the extra scene, the afterword, if you will. Romans 15, 13 is the end of Paul's primary content of his letter. And it wraps up in kind of a surprising place that if you've really been tracking along with us over the course of the last year or so, then I think the place where Paul ends is a little bit surprising, maybe not where we would expect him to conclude his letter. This morning, as we move into that, it's because it's been a few weeks since we've been in Romans as we've celebrated Christmas, I want to just stop and kind of zoom out, see, remind everybody, what are we doing in this series as a whole, and where has Romans taken us to get to this point? And so we're using the book of Romans to, to talk about what it is to be gospel-centered, to build our lives on the truth of the gospel. And when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the reality that humanity is sinful, broken, in need of a Savior, that that's a condition that we all have, and that Jesus Christ is that one and only sufficient Savior, that God's grace is extended to us and Jesus Christ's work on the cross, and we receive that grace by faith. And when we have received that grace, our sin is forgiven and we're brought into union with Christ and we will spend eternity with God. That's the gospel. Romans paints this picture of a life in a Romans 12, one sort of way that in all things is offered up to the Lord as a living sacrifice, that that is what it is to worship Him. And so to be gospel-centered means that the gospel forms the core of our understanding of who God is and how we interact in all of our life situations. And as we've worked through Romans and talked about what it is to be gospel-centered, we've had some of these other concepts bubble to the surface, that we are humbly unified, that unity in the global church as played out in local churches all around the world is a central desire of the Lord's for his people and it paints a picture of the power of the gospel, that we're to be mission-driven, that the proclamation of the gospel in word and deed is the primary motivation in the life of a follower of Jesus, that we're pursuing holiness, that it's the aim of every follower of Jesus to grow in their likeness to Christ and their obedience to him. And then here in a couple weeks, we'll talk about being disciple-making, that followers of Jesus make disciples through the context of intentional relationships, allowing the truth of the gospel to impact their own lives in such a way that faith in Christ is multiplied in the lives of others around them. That that's what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so Romans has worked through the gospel message, the core theological truths of the gospel, but then also how those play themselves out in the life of a believer. Romans 1, 2, and 3 is all about the reality of sin. It's hard to read. It's hard to come face to face with. It's hard enough to read about in a text. It's even harder to then look in the mirror and see that those texts in Romans 1, 2, and 3 are an accurate depiction of our own hearts and our own lives. But we have a sin condition that separates us eternally from a righteous and a holy God. And then in Romans 4 and 5, we're told that the only way to be declared righteous in His sight is by His grace, which is received through faith in Jesus Christ. That righteousness has been imputed upon humanity by faith since the very beginning. Romans chapter 4, Abraham was declared righteous by faith. Romans chapter 5, that today we can be declared righteous by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then Romans 6, 7, and 8 talks about this new life that we have, that our life 
If we've received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, our life is no longer marked by the sin of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, but instead it's marked by this new life that we have thanks to Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 7, and 8 talks about the power of the Holy Spirit and its presence and its work in the life of a believer. And then Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about the sovereignty of God, that He is over and above all things, that He sees them, that He's directing them, and that that even includes all of those, Jew and Gentile, who would be welcomed into his family. Romans 12.1 starts the practical section of the letter, and then that works its way all the way through the middle of Romans chapter 15, where we'll be this morning. And that's that we respond to the sovereign grace of God in saving us by giving our lives to him as a total and continual act of worship. Paul has spelled out exactly what that means, and not all of its facets, but many of them, that we use our gifts to serve Him and to encourage and share the gospel and build up the church, that we love one another, that we submit to one another. It means that we bear with one another patiently and that we work through our differing opinions on non-essential matters and we do all of that within the context of not breaking unity as a church. And now, Paul's going to wrap all of that up. Romans 15, 7 to 13, the final paragraph of Paul's content, he's going to give us one final reminder. And the last reminder that he wants us to have is that our union with Christ is the model and the motivation for our union with one another. Let's read it. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers and so the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will appear, and the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the Gentiles will hope in him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our union with Christ is both the model and the motivation for our union with one another. When we started into this entire section on unity, it began in Romans 14, verse 1. We did a little bit of work to define the word accept, and that's because accept kind of has uh, almost like a surface-level sort of connotation uh, in English, whereas the actual word in Greek, proslambano, is something much deeper than that. To accept one another as Christ has accepted us is more than just giving someone the space to be an acquaintance in your life. It's more than acquiescing to another person's right to have a different opinion and yet to be part of the group. It's more than acknowledging that they've got a right to belong. This word means to welcome someone into the fellowship of your heart. This kind of acceptance means to have union with one another. Think of the difference between merely just letting someone stand inside the doorway of your house as compared to really welcoming them in with hospitality, serving a meal, caring for them, tending to their needs. That's the difference between kind of a surface level idea of acceptance and this deeper meaning that Paul has of union. And and he plays out the full thrust of that by saying that you're to accept one another just as Christ also accepted you. Christ did much more than just kind of tacitly agree that we could be part of him. He's done something so much greater than that. I want to illustrate with 
um, kind of the early story of the book or the movie or the musical Les Miserables. If you've not seen it, there's a man, Jean Valjean, he's released from prison. He's been in prison for 19 years. And he's got to carry with him this yellow card because he's on parole that marks him as a criminal. So he leaves the prison and he arrives in this town and he's looking for a place to stay and no one will give him any sort of lodging. So he finally arrives at the home of the bishop in that town. The bishop takes him in, but he doesn't just kind of take him in and give him a place to sleep. He trusts him. He sits down and he listens to him. He feeds him. He gives him a room to stay in. And in the middle of that night, that first night, if you are familiar with the story, Jean Valjean wakes up He grabs the silverware and the silver plates that he's literally just eaten off of with the bishop, and he heads off into the night. And he's apprehended by the police. He's brought back to the home of the bishop. And in that instance, we get this picture of the true depth of the bishop's accepting, of his receiving, of his welcoming. Because there in front of the police, he doesn't condemn Jean Valjean. He doesn't say, you're a criminal and you'll always be a criminal. Instead, If you're familiar, you know what he does. He says, you forgot to take the candlesticks. And he goes and he grabs the rest of the valuable stuff out of his home and he hands it over to Jean Valjean and he says, go. That's a different kind of acceptance. That's a different kind of welcoming than to merely say, I tacitly agree that you could just sleep in my house and I'm going to ignore you. It's wildly different. It comes with an unbelievable amount of grace. It comes with kind of a a recognition of the unworthiness of Jean Valjean. It comes with a desire for something so much greater than just some sort of uh, existing alongside one another. Ultimately, it comes at great personal cost to the bishop. And so a little bit of reflecting here on Romans 15, 7, therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted you. Well, what does that acceptance look like? If we're going to understand how we're called to accept one another in the church, we have to understand exactly how it is that Christ has accepted us. Well, he's accepted us at great personal cost. He went to the cross in order for our acceptance to be possible. He gave his life. He gave his life willfully. He gave his life joyfully. Christ's acceptance of us came despite our utter unworthiness. Romans 1, 2, and 3 not only shows us that we have sin and we need a Savior, it also makes it very clear that we absolutely don't deserve a Savior, that there's nothing inside of us that just merits the fact that Christ would go to the cross, that we're not so lovely and so wonderful that Christ would want to do that simply because of our greatness. In fact, the opposite is true. The picture that Romans 1, 2, and 3 paints is something that's pretty dark and deplorable. And in spite of or despite our utter unworthiness, Christ has accepted us. We also see that Christ's acceptance of us came with life-changing grace. That grace is soul-saving, it is eternity-securing, but it's also life-transforming. The acceptance, the welcoming, the receiving that Christ gives us isn't one that says, I see you with all of your sin and all of your brokenness and at great personal cost to myself, despite your utter unworthiness, I'm willing to give myself for you so that you can just be that for the rest of your life. That's 
not how Christ's acceptance works. There's life-changing grace. Romans 6, 7, and 8. You get this new life and the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you to transform you into something new, into something different. And Christ's acceptance of us came for the sake of God's glory. He had something in view that was much larger than merely our acceptance. And so Paul says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Which means that we would need to accept one another often at great personal cost. We talked about a few, uh, it's been a couple months, I guess, when we started Romans 14, that one of the great things about being in the local church is that in real time here on any given Sunday morning or at any given small group meeting throughout a week, we're, we're making sacrifices for one another on the fly. And I'm, I mentioned a few weeks ago that you might show up on any given Sunday and you might wish the music was different or the lights were lower or the preaching style was different or that the room looked a different way. You might wish we had fog machines up here, whatever the case might be. Those are small. Those are, are minor ways, but they're us making real-time kind of sacrifices to say, you know what, there are some things I don't really love or maybe I would do differently, but in order to be part of this family, I'm willing to lay those things aside. Those are small personal costs. There are times where, uni- where union with the body of Christ might cost you something greater. That someone's sin, someone's brokenness comes slamming into your life in a way that causes great pain, that creates great difficulty, that hurts you in a deep sort of way. And union in that moment means choosing to work toward reconciliation, to work toward forgiveness to process through that in order that our unity might look like the same kind of acceptance that Christ extended to us. We accept one another despite our utter unworthiness. Look, I'll be the first one to admit that there's nothing inherent about me that should make it so that everyone within this church wants to be in the same place as me on every Sunday morning. In fact, that's usually working the other direction. Most of the stuff about who I am and what exists at the very core of me would not be the kind of thing that would like just draw people to me. And the same is true for all of us. We recognize that there's this utter unworthiness that exists among all of us. And yet, we've been accepted by Christ in the face of our utter unworthiness. And so we come into union with one another despite everyone's utter unworthiness. And we recognize that that exists for everybody, that it's not just a them problem, but I'm actually great, that it's an us thing, and we can accept one another despite it. We're to accept one another with lives that have been changed by grace. That no longer do our relationships need to be marked by Romans 1, 2, and 3, and the brokenness and kind of the self-interested nature of that, but instead our relationships can be marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That instead of Romans 1, 2, and 3 kind of interactions with one another, we can have Galatians 5 kind of interactions with one another. Interactions that are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Because we've been changed by grace. And we accept one another for the sake of God's glory. There's something more at play here than just getting along. That there's a deeper motivation for this. In Romans 14, 
all of Romans 14, in the first paragraph of Romans 15, verses 1 through 6, this idea of loving and accepting one another and having union with one another was in relation to the weaker brother or sister. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 14. But Paul's expanding that call now here in Romans 15, 7, and it includes all who would be within the church. That their presence in the family of God is on the basis of Jesus Christ who died on their behalf in order that they might be accepted not only into the church, but ultimately into the eternal fellowship of God. Now our task is to accept or to welcome, to have union with one another in a likewise manner. That our union with Christ, just as he accepted us, is both the model and the motivation for our union with one another. And at the end of verse 7, Paul gives us the reminder as to why this is to be the case. It's to the glory of God. Christ's work on the cross was to the glory of God. Unity is a really big deal to Jesus. You can go back and read John 17 and see how important that is to him. Unity is a really big deal to Paul. He writes about it here in Romans. First and Second Corinthians are more or less entirely focused on that. You can read about Paul's longing for unity in Galatians. It comes out in Philippians. You can see it in the other authors of New Testament epistles. Why? Why is that the case? Well, because our unity is a display of God's glory. Christ's work on the cross was on our behalf, but it was ultimately for the sake of God's glory. Make no mistake about it. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross, first and foremost, is the ultimate, the pinnacle of the declaration of the glory of God. It comes with our eternal benefit. We get salvation in eternity with him, but ultimately it is the, the ultimate expression of the love of God, of the justice of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. There on the cross is the perfect depiction of the glory of God, and we get unbelievable blessing because of it. If we're going to accept one another in a likewise manner, we have to do so from hearts that seek to glorify Him. This means we don't accept one another with an eye toward ourselves. I don't accept you because of what I might get out of it down the road. It means we don't accept one another with an eye toward the other person. I don't accept you just so you'll feel good about yourself. That's kind of our current day societal understanding of acceptance. That you accept another person mostly so that they'll feel good about themselves. That's not the reason in a biblical sense that we're to have union with one another in the church. This means we don't accept one another with our eyes primarily, primarily locked on the atmosphere of our local church or its growth or its size. Look, I want us to be a welcoming place, but I don't want us to be a welcoming place so that more people come here. I want us to be a welcoming place because the Bible tells us to be, to be welcoming of one another, to have union with one another to the glory of God. That's the reason the benefits to myself, the benefits to someone else, the benefits to our church, those are results of our loving union. They are not motivations. If we make those the motivation, then when our attempts to walk in unity don't elicit the right results, our desire to fight through that is going to wane very quickly. Instead, our motivation is God's glory. We are to accept one another with hearts and eyes that are locked on the glory of God. We accept one another with hearts that want to see him glorified in our union the same way he was glorified when Christ made our union possible. We accept one another with a motivation that stems from nothing about ourselves or even other people, but instead a motivation that is singularly focused on him. 
If you go back to Romans 12.1, we're told to offer our lives to Him. That's for His glory. We give our lives to Him as an object of worship, as an act of worship, as a living sacrifice. When it comes to our relationships with one another, this kind of unity and union, that's what it looks like to make an offering of your life. This is how we take the practical daily stuff of being human alongside one another and turn it into an act of worship. And so you, you get to the end of Romans 15, verse 7, and the logical question is the same kind of question that Jesus got asked in Luke chapter 10, where a teacher of the law said, who's my neighbor? You get to the end of verse 7 and you think to yourself, who do I have to accept? That's our natural human bent. Who do I have to extend this to? Who do I have to have union with? And in verses 8 through 12, Paul gives a sweeping answer. The answer is everyone in the church. You don't get to make any distinctions. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the Father. In Paul's immediate context here in Rome, he is saying that you accept your Jewish heritage, brothers and sisters, because Christ has accepted them. He became the servant of the circumcised, the Israelites, the Jewish people. Christ became their servant and he lived and he died and he resurrected in order to bring complete fullness to the Old Testament covenant promises that were made to God's chosen people. Christ has accepted them, Paul says to the Roman church, you accept them too. And then he goes on in verses 9 through 12, and he says, and so that the Gentiles may glorify God. A Gentile would be anybody that's not Jewish. Jewish people, everybody else. Paul says, you accept your Gentile heritage, brothers and sisters, because Christ has accepted them. And he gives four Old Testament quotations. One comes from the Pentateuch, one comes from the prophets. One or two of them come from Psalms, which are grouped together uh, in Jewish tradition as the writings. And so there are three portions to the Jewish scriptures, the Pentateuch, the prophets, and then all of the writings. And Paul pulls from all of those. And he says, look, this has always been the case. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praise to your name. Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. The root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. You accept the Gentiles because Christ has accepted them. Our union with Christ is the model and motivation for our union with one another. But it leaves us with this interesting question because we don't really think in terms of Jew and Gentile. What does this mean in our context? I want to give an overriding principle here. And that's that we are to make no barrier to unity within the church other than the one barrier that Scripture makes clear. And that's grace received by faith in Jesus Christ. I think it's a common thing that uh, our American culture does within the church where we judge whether or not a person is actually saved by some false sort of criteria that we've made up. We can do this theologically. I have one theological bent. Someone else has an entirely different one. And I start to think, can you even believe that and be saved? We do this politically. You might be right-leaning. 
you see what kind of right-leaning political things are, and you look at your left-leaning Christian brother or sister, and you say to yourself, could they possibly even be saved and think that Jesus would stand for those things? And then you might be left-leaning, and you look at what left-leaning political things are, and you read Scripture, and you say, Jesus is absolutely for these. How could these right-leaning people even be saved? And we make a barrier. And all of a sudden, we want to parse out within the church who's saved and who's not. We can do that politically. We can do it theologically. We can do it socially. We can do it nationally. We can do it on the basis of race. Whereas Paul's call is to put no other barrier in place other than the one that Scripture makes clear. Grace received through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the means by which a person has union with Christ, and it's the means by which we are to have unity with one another. Then he concludes in verse 13 with a prayer. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our acceptance is by Christ through faith alone. As you believe. That's the middle of verse 13. This is the great message of Romans. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We have union with Christ only one way. And you can have that union with Him today, and you can have it for all of eternity. And if you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then all of this union stuff that we're talking about, union with the Lord, union with the body of believers, I love you deeply, but it doesn't apply to you. It can apply to you. You can have forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of Romans 1 through 3 on the basis of Romans 4 and 5. Then you can get new life like Romans 6, 7, and 8 says. And God is sovereign over all of that. And you can be ushered into the beautiful unity that's described in Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. As you believe. Acceptance by Christ brings joy and peace. And that moves in two directions. Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. We have peace with God because Jesus paid the price for our sins. Romans 53, verse, Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon Him. We have joy because we've been showered in His lavish grace. It's washed over us and none of the trials or difficulties in this world could ever take it away from us. In fact, those trials and difficulties that often seem to threaten the very core of who we are as human beings end up being the places where we see His grace most deeply and we come to cherish Him most clearly. But we also have peace and joy with one another. Why? Well, because thanks to the gospel, we're freed from feeling like we have to outdo one another. We're free from feeling like we live in competition with one another. And the walls that exist between us due to national, political, social, racial, or gender barriers come crashing down, and we're family. We're accepting one another. We have union with one another. And there's joy because there's no longer strife. Because as I mentioned earlier, the primary markers of our relationships with one another don't have to be the sin of Romans 1 through 3, but instead can be the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. I mean, talk about joy in your relationships. Imagine if your relationships within the church were just overflowing with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I mean, it, it would be amazing. Paul says, accept one another that kind of way because that's how Christ has accepted you. Those fruits come from the root of the saving work of Jesus Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. 
And as we work to accept one another and have union with one another, those fruits not only mark our individual lives, but our relational lives as well. And then Paul ends by saying that all of this so that you may overflow with hope. Loops not just back to the beginning of Romans 15, verse 7, but it loops all the way back to the beginning of Romans chapter 1. You remember where Paul started the content of his letter? He gave an introduction and a um, kind of a greeting to the Roman church. And then he said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. That hope is why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. That hope is the reason why Paul would want to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Martin Luther, commenting on Romans 15, 13, says this, God is both the source and the goal of a Christian's hope. Paul says, the God of hope, the source from which all hope flows. Hope that our sin can be forgiven. Hope that our eternity is secure. Hope that broke the brokenness that marks us and that marks our world doesn't have to be our defining characteristic in this life or in eternity. He is the source of hope, but he's also the goal of our hope. The God of hope fills us with hope as we look forward to the day when the reality of our salvation will be made full and complete, when we'll stand before a righteous and eternal God, clean thanks to the righteousness of Christ and bound for eternity in the presence of His unobstructed and undiminished glory. That's the goal of our hope. We look forward to a time when the often shadowy pictures of grace, unity, and acceptance that we experience with one another will exist for all of eternity in absolute perfection. There is much hope, hope that flows from God. We see it in Jesus on the cross and hope that flows toward God. We look forward to it as we await seeing Christ on the throne. That's where Paul chooses to end. With this unity that exists among believers that's shaped and looks like and is modeled by and motivated by the unity that we have with Jesus Christ. We're going to take communion this morning. I want to invite the individuals that are going to pass that out to to come up and begin distributing that. I want to give you a homework assignment. I've been doing this every Monday morning uh, since we started this Romans series. I sit down on Monday mornings. It takes somewhere between... 35 and 40 minutes, depending on my level of focus. And I read all of Romans beginning to end. Romans 1.1 all the way through Romans 16.27. And something interesting has started to happen as I read through Romans beginning to end. And that's that I get to Romans 15.7 having read all the theological stuff, having read all of the practical stuff, and then I arrive at, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted you. And I'm not kidding. I break out with goosebumps. I want to stand up like on my desk and start fist pumping because it's so incredible. What Christ has done to accept me is beyond imagination. I mean, it's wildly unfathomable that Jesus Christ would go to the cross at personal cost to himself, despite my utter unworthiness, and die there that I might have union with him. 
And then you read Romans 12 and 13 and 14 and you see the way this is supposed to play itself out and you can't help but think to yourself how different would the church look if we had union with one another and it came at the same personal cost and despite the same unworthiness with the same kind of grace to the glory of God that Christ exhibited when He died to save us. You want to talk about changing your idea about what church is? That moves church from being a place where you show up and give some attention or you show up and you sing a little bit on a Sunday morning. That moves church to being a family of believers that you would literally give yourself for. That's not how we think about church in America. We think about the church in America as a consumer service. I show up, they give me the thing that I want, I enjoy that for an hour or an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 20 minutes if the preacher's long-winded, and then I leave. There is nothing in the Bible that should lead us to believe that that is what church is. Church is a place where we have union. The church is a place where individual believers have union with Christ, and they've got union with one another that's based on and is modeled and motivated by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You sit down and you read all of Romans and you arrive in the middle of Romans 15 and it will almost bring tears to your eyes. The depth of what we should be doing to accept and love and welcome one another. And so this morning, we're going to take communion. And I want us to do two things. So if you've got your elements there, you can hold those. When we come to take communion, we're looking to the cross. We have it in front of us in two little cups, but it took place on an old rugged cross. That Jesus' body was broken for us. That His blood was poured out for us. But we also take communion in the context of a family. We do it as a group of believers. And so we look to the cross and we see what Jesus Christ did to accept us and then we look to our right and our left and we understand that He did the same thing to accept the person next to me. And so we should accept one another in the same way that Christ accepted us. And that is a powerful image. This is what Christ did to accept us. Don't look at someone next to you because they're probably in your family. Find someone across the room. Make it real weird. Make eye contact. (laughs) This is what we're supposed to do to accept them. That's powerful. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be to the glory of God. If this is what the body of Christ was doing to accept one another, oh my gosh, local churches the world over would just scream and radiate with the glory of God to everyone who happened to walk by. I mean, it would be just the most beautiful thing in the entire world, but that's countercultural to what churches in America. We are to have union with one another just as Christ made it possible for us to have union with Him. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. May we accept one another just as Christ Jesus has accepted us. Let's stand up and sing.